0: Um, Those of you who are live streaming, we have quite a number, Uh, I would encourage you to go to communitybiblechurch.us, and there's a place there at the top of the screen where you can print out this handout. Uh, Tonight is the first part of Section 8. It's 11 pages long, and I have created these um, for the Discovery class, our basic discipleship course. And it's really an important class that we offer every Sunday. It has three or four groups of people in mind, certainly new believers. Uh, many times new believers come to faith and they wait to go to the discovery class and they come in and they're struggling and say, you need to go to the discovery class. Every question you ask is covered in the discovery class. So it's important in that respect. It's also for people who sometimes have been believers for decades And no one's ever discipled them. And we've had many, many, many a person tell me and other pastors that their life changed more in the discovery class than in the previous 10, one gentleman said, in the previous 22 years of his conversion. Because sadly, if Dr. Graham was correct, 90 to 95% is the guesstimate he made of people who've met Christ. They've never grown. They've never matured. They've stayed babes in Christ. The third group in that class are those who want to know how to disciple others. And so like this is like rock bottom, these truths tonight that we'll be looking at for the next, I don't know how many weeks will take us to get through it. But this is what you want your children to know. When you think of disciples, don't think first the guy down at the office or your neighbor across the street. If you have children... Your most important disciples are your children. And that should be your first line of offense. And anything beyond that is is gravy and a blessing. And so uh, initially, for years and years, these were just general outlines and people who have taught them in other courses. We've provided the DVDs and other things where they can listen to get the Spirit and the theological detail behind the outlines. But now we have... I am, by God's grace, literally giving you pretty much every word I would say when I taught the Discovery class. It's a lot of work to type it out, to think it out, so pray for me. Um, This took me 30 hours just to do these 11 pages. Uh, There's still some typos in it, so I'll catch them as we go along. And then when this lesson is completely done, it will be uh, posted at Search the Scriptures. It's under Basic Discipleship had searched the scriptures for those who are wondering all right hopefully you have it by now you have a pen in your hand and uh, hopefully a teachable heart let's bow our heads father we love you and thank you for the incredible grace that has been shown the riches that have been shown to us in christ and thank you that when you save us you have set a plan for us you save us by grace through faith you wrote through your apostle not by good deeds but you saved us onto good works that you've prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And we certainly want to walk in the plan that you have for us. And we know much of that, our Father, comes from having our minds renewed and thinking our thoughts after your thoughts. And so we ask and pray that as we set our minds with eternity in view, that you would develop a truly genuine eternal perspective that when we come to the end of our life, it might not be wasted, but invested. So I pray and ask that you'd help me and fill me tonight and use this message in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Notice on page two, developing an eternal perspective. We have a number of objectives as we work through uh, this section of the course. And as a result of the study of this topic, we want to be able to, and I have six things listed here. And by the way, the reason there are blanks are not to irritate you, <laughs> but there are people who take this for credit in the Institute of Biblical Studies. And so the fact that they fill in all the blanks show among other things they've done the work. They also write papers and a number of things, assignments, books that they read and so on. But with that said, number 1, we want to distinguish between the judgment the unsaved will face for sin and the judgment that Christians will face for service. That's their first goal. You know the judgment of unbelievers is according to their works because their works will demonstrate, A, that they never met the living Lord, and B, God's justice will perfectly be administered according to works. Hell, in a broad sense, is terrible for anyone who goes. But somehow, in the perfect justice of God, it's not the same for everyone who goes. And the same could be said of heaven. So there's the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15 not to be confused with the judgment of the just, the Bema Seat, number of terms used to describe it that we'll look at. It's a judgment for service that the believer faces, not for sin. Two, to understand and to apply the command of Christ to store up treasure in heaven, While being motivated to obey based on the grace of God. So it's not an option to lay up treasure in heaven. It's a command. But neither is it some burden that God has laid on you. Oh, now I'm saved by grace and I'm on this performance basis. And we're saved by grace and we walk in grace. And hopefully we'll be able to think our way through that clearly. Three. To discern the basis by which God will grant heavenly rewards and crowns, and to know the relationship of our rewards to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, what does God reward us for? What things constitute eternal reward? It's a whole lot of things, but there are definitely some focused items that God has given us. And the focus of crowns will not be to strut around as peacocks in heaven but to give the Lord Jesus glory. Four, to be able to clearly define the term steward and to be able to identify at least eight general areas in which God will assess our stewardship. There's at least eight areas that are underscored and emphasized in the New Testament which God will look at when we face Him at the judgment of the just. Five, to ascertain the difference between those things that are eternal versus those things that are, of temp- that are temporal in the role of the Spirit in determining each. So the Holy Spirit plays a very important role in our laying up treasure in heaven. And we'll see, among other things, you can do the right things, but with the wrong attitude and in the power of the flesh, and it will be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. There are people in full-time ministry that are just, it's like they got a chip on their shoulder. They're miserable. I've met many of them over the decades. They're unhappy. There's no joy in their life. And yet they're full-time in the ministry. And just because they're doing some things that potentially could take on eternal value doesn't always flesh out that way. And the same is true for any of us. Because in one sense, as we'll see, we're all full-time for the Lord. And then sixth, to memorize two verses of Scripture and developing an eternal perspective. With each of these handouts, there are two verses that are thematic to the subject, but some of you who are with us in the uh, handout number seven, I gave you the hundred key passages. Maybe some of you have started that. Anybody, by any chance, start those? All right, great, about a dozen. That's great. Maybe we can get some more. All right, so by way of introduction, and by the way, what I do with each of these things is there's a general introduction so you know where we're headed, and then under each Roman numeral, if you end up teaching this, there's kind of a focused paragraph of what you hope to accomplish in that Roman numeral, all right? So God, by way of introduction, God calls us to be wise master builders because God wants us to invest our lives not just for the here and now but for eternity future. There is coming a day, maybe today, when either by death or by rapture, that our lives on earth will end. If we're saved, we will face not the judgment of the lost, but the judgment of the just. Concerning this judgment, the Apostle Paul instructs the believers in Rome, it's Romans fourteen twelve so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The judgment of believers will obviously not be a judgment to determine where we will spend eternity. The Bible is very clear that God's declaration concerning our guilt has already been settled. Jesus plainly said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, that's one of the things that you and I should pray for as we share the gospel with people, that they already see that they're under the judgment because it's a works mentality, the big scale in the sky imagery that many have falsely adopted that puts the future determination out there in eternity. When in God's economy, it's already done. And typically, until a person sees that, they're not going to flee to Christ. And so, you've got to get a person, we'll often say, lost before you can get them saved. Now, it's not my responsibility to get them lost. It's my responsibility to use the Word of God. But Again, the Spirit of God, that's the instrument he used as we studied in depth in the last session. So that you want them to see, no, the judgment is already done. It's already written across their foreheads, guilty. We're already on the broad way that leads to destruction. Until someone sees that, they won't flee to Christ. God's judgment for heaven or hell is determined and forever settled at the moment of death based on what you've done with God's Son. This lesson concerns the judgment that born-again believers will face. Often it's called the judgment of the just. And the judgment of the just will determine how you will be rewarded throughout eternity based on how you invested your life after you have received God's salvation. And by the way, we will see later in this study that someone who comes to faith, say, at 65 can potentially still have a great reward as someone who came to faith at 15. And we'll examine how God weighs all that. True Christians will face a judgment not for their sin, but for their service. It is very important that as God's people consider their coming future judgment, that as God's people consider their coming future judgment so that we might live in light of it. So it's important that we consider that. We want to live in light of eternity. And Christ wants us to. And we'll see how he underscored that. So, Roman number one, that's as far as we'll go tonight. We hope to accomplish point one there, how we can recognize the shortness of life on earth. We need to recognize the shortness of life on earth. So again, this paragraph, and by the way, all the scripture is in blue. If you wonder why we have blue words, that's, that's scripture, All right. Uh, someone asked me that. And it was a good question. A repeated theme throughout the Bible concerns the brevity of life. That's a, a theme underscored over and over and over again. To us, life sometimes seems very, very long because we tend to measure it in years, right? Every year, maybe you have a birthday party or something. But God wants us to consider our lives in light of eternity, and then we can see clearly how short it is. So in describing our lives, and by the way, the quotations that I take from Job, I'm always very careful Because I hear, you know who the masterminds are of using Job? It's the prosperity theologians. And they quote the three men that God at the end basically expresses his disgust over. So you want to make sure when you quote Job, you're quoting Job (laughs) and not one of, say, his three friends, so that you're quoting someone that God put his stamp of approval on just a commercial, all right. I wrote a paper once on prosperity theology in my doctoral studies, and, and I, I, I examined all these prosperity theologians and how they masterfully uh, used Job to undergird their false teaching. And so we read here in describing our lives, Job said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. I've only seen a weaver shuttle once. I was in Turkey. It was pretty impressive. It moves super fast. And when Job refers to the royal couriers who hastened in their mission, he said, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Furthermore, in describing the shortness of life, Job instructs us, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. So our days, our days turn into years, and our years turn into decades. Before long, our life has expired. For this reason, it's very important that as Christians, we renew our minds as to how short life is so that we do not waste our lives, but rather invest our lives. And that's what we're looking at in this lesson. How do we invest our lives for the glory of God? God's Word plainly teaches that the manner in which we invest this small slice of time, and that's really all it is, it's just a small slice of time, will determine how we will be rewarded when we go to heaven. And we'll see many of the implications of eternal rewards as we step through this. So point A, recognizing life is short, we set our hope on God. That's what we want to do. Recognizing how short life is, we want to set our hope on God. A number of the hymns that we had tonight had that theme of hope. And of course, hope in Scripture, LPDs, is not a word that's somewhat squishy like English. It has a lot of steel and concrete in it. It speaks of something that is absolutely certain that typically will happen in the future. Or in this case, when we set our hope on God, we are setting our confidence in one who is absolutely sure and certain and reliable. Psalm 39 was written by David during the last years of his life. Why don't you turn to Psalm 39, all right? If you have a Bible If you're new to the Bible, psalms are are about dead center. And so often as a pastor, if I bring you to an Old Testament book, I might say, find psalms and hang a left or go right. Because psalms are about in the middle of your Bible. Psalms 39. When you refer to the whole book, it's psalms, plural. When you refer to a single chapter, it's psalms, singular. So I'd say Psalm 35, not Psalms 35, but psalm. 35. And not palms. Somebody asked me, well, where's the book of palms? (laughs) You know, again, these are great questions that new believers will often ask. Psalm 39. And you'll notice um, here, it follows Psalm 38, which is also a Psalm of David uh, for a memorial. And then Psalm 39 it gives instructions to the choir director, a Psalm of David. So you'll notice like Psalm 39, notice how that's in dark, bold print. Do you see that? If you're using the NAS or different publishers do it different ways, that's, that's something that's added. There's not a manuscript that says Psalm 39. There's the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms has five divisions to it. And if you look carefully as you work through the Psalms, We'll say like book one, later on book two, book three. So there's five books that's inspired. But the chapter and verse divisions are obviously added. And then like here in the NES, it says the vanity of life. Do you see that? It's in italics. That's not part of the inspired scripture. That's just a publisher's note. And as you read through the Bible, you'll see these chapter titles. Why do they put them there? Just to help you. So as you're, you know, fishing through and I'm looking for this subject and you're going through a book, oh, here's the chapter title. So use those as you learn God's word or you're helping others to learn God's word. And then you have a Psalm of David. You see that? That's inspired. So we know David wrote it. Now there's a few Psalms where it doesn't say a Psalm of David, but by divine commentary in the New Testament, David says credited with that Psalm. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, David wrote that Psalm It didn't say it in the superscription, but the Holy Spirit wrote it through this author in the New Testament. Now, sometimes there's a little more detail in the superscription, and in many Bibles, they will include, like verse 1, will start a Psalm of David. I think the Ukrainian Bible does it that way. The Hebrew Bible does it that way, so verse 1 starts with a Psalm of David, and that's okay because that's part of the inspired text. And in some countries of the world, they'll make that super inscription a verse. So that's verse one, a Psalm of David. And so if you're teaching or in ministry overseas with one of our mission aid groups, and, and they say, well, I'm, you're off a of verse, <laughs> they might come back and say, no, you're off a of verse. And, uh, but But just keep that in mind. So here in number one, Psalm 39 was written by David during the last years of his life. While this psalm cannot be connected to any specific event in his life, like some of the other psalms, you know, a psalm of confession after he sins with Bathsheba, right? Psalm 51, the inspired superinscription is there. While this psalm cannot be connected to any specific event in his life, it teaches us some lifelong lessons of our need to set our hope on God. The psalm opens with David recounting a previous prayer he made when asking God for help by not speaking foolishly before the lost. And so he he doesn't want the unbelievers, remember, this is a prayer, and this is also a song. And so they'll take prayers and they'll pray them. So people say, is it okay to pray the psalms. Sure, they used them both ways, and they still use them both ways. But they also sang them. And there's a few psalms I still have in my head that I learned at 18 or 19 years of age because we sang them in the Christian ministry I was involved in, and it's just like it was an easy way to memorize it. Some of us are struggling memorizing the top 100 passages, but if I ask you to sing a particular song, you just boom, 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 right? This is why our music ministry on Wednesday nights is so vital to our children, to have your children engaged in that. King David feared that if he began to speak at all, that he might speak wrongly before the lost about God by complaining. And so he wisely kept within some strong thoughts that he chose not to express publicly. David will express that here, and you know that, that says a lot about this guy. He didn't want to be a bellyacher in front of lost people, because he's in some difficult circumstances. But he doesn't want to misrepresent God either before a lost world. Five, like a fire within him, his words burn to come out. But he held them in, fearing that he might regret his words. Notice that his hope is in God. Follow along. David said, I said I will keep watch over my ways so that I do not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refused to say even something good, and my pain was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, let me know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. So notice 6. David's silence is broken here in verse 4 with a humble prayer to God. And while he was wise in not speaking his fears and doubts before the wicked, he does pour out his fears and his frustrations before the Lord. By the way, that's the great place to do it. God already knows our fears and frustrations. And he's a good person to bring them to. Number eight, notice how King David in verse four asked God for wisdom, specifically wisdom to know the shortness and the transitory nature of life. He prays, it's a prayer. This is a great prayer for us. Lord, Yahweh, let me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Notice David's hope in God as his prayer continues here in verses five through seven. says, behold, you have made my days like hand and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Certainly all mankind standing is a mere breath, silah. Certainly every person walks around as a fleeting shadow. They certainly make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. David was not praying to know the date of his death or when his life would end, but rather he was praying for an accurate assessment of life. So when he prays, Lord, let me know how transient I am. He he, he's not praying, Lord, you know how how many days have I got left? He he wants He wants God to implant in his mind how short this life is. That's a great prayer. I don't know if you've ever prayed something like that. It will influence the way you live when you get up in the morning. He prays here in verse 4, let me know my end and what is the extent of my days. And then he acknowledges to God that he wants to live with the reality of the shortness of life As he states in verse 5, Behold, you have made my days like hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Certainly all mankind standing is a mere breath. So David wants God to help him, to help him. That's the prayer for him. And that's a good prayer for me and for you. to help him to appreciate the brevity of human life, especially now as David is no longer a shepherd boy, but an older man. He realizes how short life is, and he wants to invest the remainder well. In Bible days, the Hebrew people measured short distances with hand breasts which was one of the smallest units of measurement in ancient Israel. It's equivalent to a couple of inches. Exodus 25, 25 reveals that. So when we think of a hand breath, it's that this, this is the breadth of your hand. It's not this, it's this. That's a hand breath. So you've got a hand breath, then you have a, a span. You'll read about a span in Scripture. A span is about nine inches, the width of an adult hand. And two span is a cubit, about 18 inches. I got big hands, but I have a, I have a divine span. <laughs> and there's the cubit, all right? So in Exodus 28, 16, you'll read about the breastplate of the high priest and how it's a span by a span, or nine inches by nine inches. And then you read of a, a cubit, which is two span, eight, which is about 18 inches. Now, when I was in Israel one time, I had seen a sign that I'd never seen before in all my trips, and I took a picture of it and made a note, and there's a place that um, you can walk through. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and Hezekiah built this protective tunnel to carry water securely into the city so that the enemies could not you know, invade your water supply. Without water, you're doomed in any city, ancient city. And it was a magnificent project. It was unbelievable. They, stopped on, they started on opposite ends. And without all the things we have today, they met in the middle. And the thing is, you know, I think 1,725 feet long. So you can walk through it, and uh, there is an ancient um, inscription in Hebrew that goes back to Hezekiah's day, that someone chiseled into the wall of what it was like when they met each other, and they could hear the hammers pounding. And um, there's also a measurement that the tunnel is 1,200 cubits long. And then someone took that measurement and they put it in feet and inches. So you could basically calculate how long a cubit is. And so um, I did that so that when we got to the Valley of Elah where you have um, Goliath, you know, how how tall was he and so on. And so you could even, it, it comes just short of 18 inches. Uh, based on that, but, you know, again, it's a a rough measurement, 18 inches, and that's not a bad thing, you know, if you're trying to measure something, and, um, or, you know, sometimes people do it like this, they try to foot it out right, and so it's a good little measurement to think about. Okay, let me keep going, that was this commercial there. The newer translations render, oh, that's Exodus 25, 25 was the blank there. Um, The newer translations render the Hebrew adjective as handwhiff, because it was the width of four fingers, meaning a very short distance. And so since life is a short like a mere breath, knowing that the many pursuits of this life are relatively insignificant in view of the short time that we live, David prays that God will grip him with this reality. I don't think a lot of Christians are really gripped with the shortness of life. Again, it's part of the renewal process of our minds. All of a sudden, we wake up and we're old people. And we've let decades go by investing in silliness. At the end of verse 5, he adds a silah, which technically is a musical pause, but when you study the silahs, I saw a guy who did his Ph.D. dissertation on the silahs of Scripture I mean, that's what I do sometimes is I read Ph.D. dissertations. Some guy's going to take some subject and he's going to give himself to it and spend two years on it sometimes. I'm always interested in what they came up with. But what is interesting is that while it's a musical pause, it's more than a musical pause. It's a time to stop and think. You know, and if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, there's a few places where there's some just timed pauses. And they're just so perfectly put and they're almost inspired where you're caused to reflect and to think. And that's what David is doing. The Spirit of God has him put in silah, musical pause, so one can pause and reflect. And this silah is an appropriate call for each one reading to pause and to think of the shortness and fragility of his life. 18. I think one of the reasons God could refer to David as a man after his own heart, and by the way, that's found in 1 Samuel 13, but it's also repeated in a sermon Paul gives in Acts 13, was because this champion, this warrior king, this celebrity and songwriter had a proper perspective. There's many things we could come up with, why is he a man after God's own heart, but that's certainly one of them. This guy lived with his eye on eternity. He had a proper perspective. David could easily have thought more highly of himself than he should have, something Paul warns us not to do. Remember, everything we have comes from God, whatever gifts we have. That's the context of that verse. What you are, you are because God gave it to you, not because you're some big shot. We are what we are. Everything we have it comes from God. And so he could have been tempted to think more highly of himself than he should have, but he recognized That he, like all men, even as the great king, were nothing more than a vapor, a puff of steam, or in the psalm, a mere breath. David also knows that most have not really contemplated the brevity of life, as seen by the philosophy of life most people have, stated here in verse 6. Certainly, every person walks around as a fleeting shadow. They certainly make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. That life, you're dead, you get your house left behind, all your junk in it. Most people don't want it because they already have their own junk and they can't move your junk into their junky home. And, you know, what do you do with it? God by David tells us that every person walks around as a fleeting shadow, that most live a life Chasing shadows. They are busy amassing riches while all the while ignoring what God calls eternal. Most people think this is the land of reality when this in many ways is the land of shadows. I'm using David's imagery here. In heaven, which is forever, that's the land of reality. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.8, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In verse 7, David draws a conclusion by really asking and answering his own question. He says, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Perceiving how short this life is in comparison to eternity drove David to put his expectation and hope in the Lord. Sadly, and by the way, that's, notice it's all caps there, right, Lord? So that's the uh, personal name of God. So we'll come to Psalm 90 in a second. It's interesting to look at the different names for God, but you want to read those observantly because he's falling back on his relationship to the Lord. Sadly, lost people have a this life only. I used to call it a TLO perspective. A this life only mentality. And so they live their lives not centered in God, but in self. Circumstances maybe for some fame and fortune. What is even sadder is when a believer has lost focus such that his desire and expectations are centered on the temporal instead of the eternal. Recognizing life is short, may we, like David, wait on God as we learn to value what he values. So that we can say to God, my hope is in you. That's why this lesson is so important. You don't want to miss a single week. Point B, recognizing life is short, we should reflect on our mortality. Recognizing life is short, we should reflect on our mortality. So knowing it's short, we should set our hope on God. Point B here, we should reflect on our mortality. Psalm 90 why don't you turn there for a second? Psalm 90, all right? Psalm 90. By the way, this is the only Psalm written by Moses. And all the other writers of all the Psalms came after Moses. That makes this the oldest Psalm in the scriptures. And you'll notice Psalm 90. Oh, look right above Psalm 90. What does it say? book four. So the Psalms are broken into five books. That's actually part of the inspired found on manuscripts. There's five books. That's book four. And then, of course, it says here in the NAS, if you're using the ESV or some other translation, they'll put chapter titles differently. Again, they're not inspired. Here, God's eternity and man's transitoriness. Not a bad title. When I was at Dallas Seminary, we had to go through every chapter of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. But in the Old Testament survey, you had to come up with your own chapter title for every single chapter in the Old Testament. They don't do that stuff anymore. But it was, um, it was a good exercise because it kind of gave you a feel for a book of the Bible, especially. And then it says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So notice that that's in the same typeset as the rest of the psalm. That's inspired. And again, in some Bible translations, that's part of verse 1. And some make it a verse in itself. So point 1 there in the outline. Psalm 90 is no doubt the oldest of all the psalms because it was written by Moses, the man of God, as a prayer to God in the wilderness. So again, they sang it, but they prayed it. So we're in the songbook, the psalter, but they prayed it. In the opening 12 verses, Psalm 90, in the opening 12 verses of Psalm 90, Moses underscores our need to consider our mortality because of the transitory nature of human life. He begins the psalm by reminding us that God is the opposite of us as he compares God's eternal nature with our transitory nature, such that we can find shelter from the hardships of life in God. Shelter. Now notice it says, let me read these five verses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, where you gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. By the way, did you see the two different names of God? The first one is capital L, small letter O-R-D, unlike what we had just read. Though if you were in Psalm 90, you still have it open. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 90 and see how it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a different Hebrew word for God. So there's three principal names. There's many names of God, especially many compound names. But three principal names of God. There's Lord, which is Adonai, and it speaks to God as the authority. You could translate it Master. So when He says, Lord, He's in submission, Master. And then there's God, In the beginning, Elohim. Here's El, just singular in the Hebrew Bible. But sometimes Elohim is in the plural, like in Genesis 1.1, which is odd. It makes the rabbis scratch their heads. They have a plural noun for God and a singular verb. That would be like saying, they is fat. No, you say, they are fat. In the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. And so really even in the opening verse in kernel form in Scripture, you have the doctrine of the Trinity that's going to be unfolded. But here, Lord, and then God, you are God, That's small g, so that's that's the name of God, El or Elohim in the plural that speaks of his power and his majesty. You are God, you're great. You turn mortals back into dust. And say, return, you sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or like a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass that sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it wilts and withers away. And then he'll use the personal name for God in verse 13 what we call the Tetragrammaton, which means four letters. And so you have Yod, He, Vav, He. And there's no way to know for sure where the vowels went because, remember, when Jews read the Bible, they read consonants and their minds supplied the vowels. And as the centuries went by, especially as Greek became the language for many Jews. And so in the New Testament, you see repeatedly the Septuagint quoted, right? And you'll see out in the margin, LXX, the abbreviation for the Greek translation, 70, 70 men were involved in the translation of the Septuagint. And that, because that's what they read. And so they lost a lot of Jewish people, their ability. How do we vocalize that word? Y-H-W-H. There's a couple ways you could add the vowels. And so even when we were in seminary in the first year of Hebrew, when you came to that, you read Adonai. And that's what Jews do today. And most Christians do that when they read the Hebrew text. Because a Jewish person didn't want to take the name of the Lord God in a disrespectful way. And if God pronounced it Yahweh and not Yehovah or however, they just say Adonai. But it's the name of by which God identifies himself, it's the most prolific name used in all the Old Testament of God. His personal care in nature for his people. Did I read through the first six verses? You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're like grass that sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it wilts and withers away. Since God is unchangeable and he never ceases to be God. That makes him our dwelling place. Or some translations say our refuge. Though a different word translated in English elsewhere. Our refuge where we can find rest and safety. God's our dwelling place. I hope you have found him that way. That he's someone you can flee to and you're just like really enjoy his presence. No matter how hectic the world is and life and jobs is your dwelling place. And this protection, that's another way to render the Hebrew for dwelling place, as in the Net Bible. And this protection can be found for all generations. Because God has always been here, even before the mighty mountains, because it was God who formed the earth and the world, and all that's in it. So he has this majestic picture of God. By the way, that's the same thing the disciples do in Acts 4. Remember, those guys are out there preaching the gospel, and their lives are threatened. and They have this prayer meeting, and what do they do? They focus on the greatness of God. And it really shrinks their enemies and their minds. In many ways, Moses is doing the same thing. By contrast, Number six, we are mere mortals created by God whose bodies will turn back into dust from where we came. This alluding to the truth, of course, in Genesis 3.19, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. This, of course, was part of the curse on man. By the way, let me just parenthetically say here, that's why Jews do not embalm. Because they felt like God in the creation wanted to make a statement that when we bury our loved ones, he wants them to go to dust. Now, embalming works for a long time, but it doesn't work forever. Even those old mummies, sometimes they dig them up and the whole thing just collapses. But but that's one of the reasons they don't embalm. And that's why if you're Jewish and you died today, you would uh, be buried by this time tomorrow because they don't embalm. This, of course, was part of the curse on man which reminds us that we are not in charge but God is in charge such that no matter how wise or strong or great we may think we are, God deserves our full allegiance. That's why he starts Adonai, Master. By the way, when you bury your dead, dead, which biblically and historically is what believers have always done, you are affirming God's promise that he will resurrect out of the the dust our new bodies. All right? So that's what Paul likens it to in that text I've quoted here, 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. He likens burying a loved one like planting a seed in the ground. See, it looks dead. Life's going to come from that. And that's why Christians have always biblically, historically, you know, we live in a day of gross ignorance, I know, and people cremate. Are they right? Of course not. There's a whole lot of things that we do, not by mandate, but by example. We're commanded to have elders, that's why we have them. We're not commanded to have deacons, but we're assumed to have deacons. And so we have deacons by example. There's tons of commands in Scripture that we follow as believers that are done by example. And every example in Scripture is burial. And the only people in Scripture who cremate are raw pagans. And it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable even 100 or so years ago in the United States. But in 2018, more people were cremated than were buried for the first time in American history. Oh, it's so expensive. Oh don't tell me about it. You can go on your stinking cruise and and then you don't want to do it God's way at the end? Bury your loved ones. And I can tell you when there's a casket down front, when I preached my mother-in-law's funeral 10 days ago, there was a lot of broken hearts of lost people who came because there was a casket. You take that out when you've got some stinking urn with a little picture. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. Now, When people ask me, will you do my funeral, I'm going to cremate. Of course I will. Are you going to mention cremation? No. That's why I'm mentioning it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Number nine, then for a second time, underscoring God's eternality, Moses writes this, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or like a watch in the night. For our eternal God, a thousand years seems like a single day, or like a watch in the night, which of course, biblically, was four hours long. A thousand years, which to us may seem so long, when compared to God's eternality, a thousand years are reduced to nothing. Turn the page, of course, the Apostle Peter reminds us that the converse is true, right? Second Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Yet our years are so quick. They're like a flood, that's what we just read in verse 5, that quickly carries things off before we can retrieve them. Or the years of our life are like grass that sprouts and flourishes and withers away. Again, think about where Moses is when he writes this. 40, 40, 40, right? You can remember his life, 40, 40, 40. Easy to remember, 40 years in Egypt, murders that dude, flees, 40 years in the wilderness. God appears to him, you know, out there with Jethro and the crowd, herding sheep, then 40 years in the wilderness, you know, leading Israel. So he's in the wilderness when he's writing this. He sees these floods coming off the mountains. They're definitely in Israel. You don't want to be on low ground when those floods come off the mountains. And he would see the, the grass sprout and the flower fades, and he's using this imagery to drive home a point. This drives Moses, the man of God, to continue his prayer here in verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger and we have been terrified by your wrath. You have placed our guilty deeds before you, our hidden sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have dwindled away in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. We as humans live a relatively short time because our sin brings death, because death is in response to God's wrath, right? Romans 6.23. Moses acknowledges that God's anger against mankind is not unjust or unreasonable or unearned for for our outward sins, but also for our hidden sins, Because there are no sins, he uses this word hidden, hidden from God. None can escape. For one aspect of God's justice for sin is physical death. Even though Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and freed us from hell if we have trusted him, the consequences of our sins still lead to death. Unless you're raptured. We shall not all die. Moses wrote this Psalm 90 during his 40 years in the desert wilderness where he witnessed the watch. Remember, he spoke of a watch four hours around the camp at night, protect the people from animals and other things, and in the rush of a mountain flood with the grass sprouting and then dying in the hot sun. Moses witnessed an entire generation Numbers 14, 29 tells us 20 years old and upward. A whole generation that perished in the wilderness such that he said after 40 years of wandering, our years are like a sigh. In this context, it is in this context that he makes the prayer of these often quoted verses. As for the days of our life, They contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is only trouble and tragedy, or sorrow, you could say, for it quickly passes and we disappear. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom." we'll just finish point B because I want to be respectful of those who are laying up treasure in heaven across the building caring for our children, right? It is interesting that he said the normal lifespan of his days was 70 years and that he lived to be 120, right? Aaron lived to be 123. Joshua died at 110. People uh, from time to time will ask in the Bible line, are the ages in the Bible real? Yes, they're real. The oldest man who ever lived who died before his father did. Remember that? The oldest man who ever lived who died before his father did. You know that rhyme, right? The oldest man who ever lived was, and he lived to be 969 years old. And who was his father? Enoch. Enoch was taken up. And his name is prophetic. When he dies, it shall come. Why a name a child that? When it dies, it shall come. And you study the chronology of Genesis, the year Methuselah dies, the flood comes. Anyway, um, their ages were a rare exception because by this time in human history, as the ages of people continued to drop after the flood, the average age was 70. Remember, everybody 20 and up perished in the wilderness. Now, some came under a judgment of God, but most of them just they just died. They gave out. The average age was 70, given neither as a promise or a limit, but as a general estimate. So this is not a promise you'll live to be 70. It's just a general estimate. And it hasn't really changed. His stress is not on our long His stress is not on how long we live, but how short we live. Years filled with trouble and tragedy in this fallen world that quickly go by. So, in light of who we are and who God is, notice what he prays to God. So, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. When he says, teach us to number our days, He's asking for wisdom, knowing that this is something that must be learned and is not automatic. God answers prayer. That is a great prayer to pray. Dr. Howard Hendricks, one of my profs at Dallas Seminary, drove home this truth. I went into his office and he had this chart. It had 70 years and across each year, 365 days. Every once in a while, the prophets, as we called him, would go in and he'd just blacken it out where you'd see where you were. And he'd walk in in the morning and he had a visual reminder of how much white space there was left in the 70 years. If you lived to 80, you know you're on bonus, bonus years. Yeah, some of us got one foot in the grave right now, right? So. So, look, if you're over 70, you're on you're bonus time. I don't do many funerals of people in their 90s or 100. I did one funeral my whole life, a guy was 100. It just doesn't happen much. So, use what you have left. Well, God, help me to present to you a heart of wisdom. Most people live with little awareness of really how short life is, and the younger one is, he tends to think his days are without number. We tend to prioritize what we think is important, and so people can count their money and count their goods and maybe even their years, but those years are made up of days that represent a lifetime. We need to live with a sense of mortality so as to invest our lives. When we make Moses' prayer our prayer and God answers this prayer, showing us how to number our days, then he will give us a heart of wisdom, which is not only for the mind, but for the heart too. All right, so next week... If you don't bring the pages that we didn't cover, don't worry, because we'll start there, all right? So, um, and by the time we're done, when it's all done, and I got the typos taken out, it will be available on the website. Let's, let's bow together in prayer, shall we? number of things that we want to carry to the Lord tonight. and Our Father, we pray with Moses, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. The days so quickly turn into years, into decades. And so we just pray in these weeks that you will give us that our minds would be renewed, that we'd think through what's really important, what do we really want to achieve in this life. Thank you that we can come to a throne of grace. We want to pray for one of our deacons tonight, Sham Barigala as he's been stuck in India for months. Father, we know he went there for his dad's funeral and can't get out of the country. And so we just ask that uh, those officials who make that decision that you'd turn the king's heart in a way that would give favor where he'd be able to come home. We're reminded tonight of the church, especially in northern India, as believers are being beheaded, churches are being burned, houses are being destroyed, hundreds injured, over 150 dead, and our news barely reports it. But you see each one precious in your sight as they stand for the gospel. And these Hamas-like persecutors, we know a day will come when they will come to justice. Be with the church there. Give them wisdom on how to be as wise as a serpent and shrewd as a dove. We are reminded to pray for Israel. You commanded us to. You promised that when they would be back in the land that they would never be expelled again. We know your word is true. We know ultimately peace will only come when the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, comes. But thank you that you are in charge, that you have gathered them from across the planet, and a day will come when those bones will take on flesh and men and women will be born again and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Be with the believers there, especially those who are engaged in the IDF, some who have already lost their lives. We pray for their witness and their testimony as they serve their country. We know unless you build a house, we labor in vain who build it. And so we want to lift Todd Friel up to you. We pray your protection over he and Susan in the days ahead, that as he comes to do our Valentine's banquet, that he would speak with great power But we ask, Father, that you would lead us to people who need to come and be their lost people, who need to hear about the Lord Jesus. And so please guide us, make us available, your tools, help us to value what you value most of all, people. You said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? We pray, too, for CBC Graniteville, as they have their own gathering with a different speaker, that your hand would be over that assembly of believers that night. Father, thank you for our Awana ministry and those who care for our children week after week. I pray and ask that more parents would be involved and take advantage of what you've entrusted to us. Thank you for those who are laboring with our children tonight, teaching them the Scripture and putting godly songs into their hearts. Bless them for their efforts, and bless and protect those children. We commit it all to you now, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.